Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. Local government is effectively a platform, right? It's infrastructure. It's the stuff that connects. We're talking with Freddie O'Connell, who's a longtime part of the Nashville technology scene and also happens to be running for mayor of Nashville. With a background in computer science, Freddie brings a unique perspective to the intersection of technology and city planning. In this episode, we'll discuss how civic tech can improve city services, increase civic engagement, and address issues of social justice and inequality. Well, I am very grateful for watching what you've been doing since I have, well, even before, I think you you had gotten into council before I left Nashville. And then I think Just since- right then, before. Yeah. Since then, it's, it seems like you've really led from the position that you're in there. I wonder if you can take us through a little bit of what this process has been like for you, stepping into a more obviously direct role in government and realizing that <clears throat> you wanted to step into more of a direct role in government. Yeah, it's so interesting, Kate, because you and I met, and I'm trying to think, because I feel like I knew of you from Nashville's blogosphere, right? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, you've always been at the vanguard of whatever's happening in tech. And interestingly, I think this is such an interesting time to talk about is because you've always, as I've known, you had a whether it's by habit or by design, I don't know, but you've been able to connect it to local issues as well, very effectively. And so I felt like when I moved into this neighborhood that I'm in, Salem Town, a little residential neighborhood in Nashville, Tennessee, and you were right down the road in Germantown. It was so interesting because our hyper-local blogosphere showed the power of an organized community, right? And so we were a little more on the map and you all had already been on the map. And so when I moved in, it was like, oh, I know people. It was like Mike Bird and John Hutchison and you, and there were a handful of other people in the area. And it was people speaking up about the little neighborhood things like infrastructure and quality of service from metro departments, right? Our local government. And, and so I felt, oh, yeah, okay. If I move over into this part of town, we've got this group of engaged citizens who I know are going to be looking out for things. And I came in, got involved. That was very much true. And then I got invited pretty quickly to join the ranks of neighborhood leaders in the area. And so we had these multiple neighborhoods in our area collaborating with one another, and it was a great experience. And it was a similar thing where I think having done that for several years, I had people who I'd met through that process start to encourage me to look at a council seat. And it was interesting because in the meantime, I was working in technology, and that was another way in which our paths crossed more than once. And... I also had gotten involved in transit and mobility issues. So I was, I had been invited by the then mayor of Nashville, Carl Dean, to join his transit authority board of directors. And so I had been a longtime transit user here in Nashville, and it was fascinating to get to work in that policy space. So by the time I ran for Metro Council, I feel like I had a pretty good, well-rounded portfolio of issues of interest, right? So we had a lot of neighborhood level things, a lot of kind of transit and infrastructure related issues. We had in our neighborhood some both nonprofit and government organizations focused on equity and vulnerable populations. So we had the Nashville Rescue Mission, which had the women and children's campus for families basically that didn't have homes, and the Metro Action Commission, which was 
this organization focused on things like low income heat and energy assistance. And so building those relationships in the community and then my background in technology, because I've always wanted Nashville to excel at being a modern, smart city. And it's not something that happens automatically. And we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. But I wondered the, to, uh, sorry to, to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, wondered if you had any insight into ways in which your background in technology came into play. I think about maybe project management as being a transferable yeah. skill. Were there other aspects of your background that you found, oh yeah, it's suddenly convenient to have in this new role? Absolutely. And it was interesting because even on the Nashville MTA board of directors, I was able to push on the one hand very successfully to get us to a point where we could have a real-time feed of data in this standard set of things going on. I think it's called GTFS was the feed at the time, and it's still live. And so we had started working on having all of our, every vehicle in the fleet had a way to know where it was, automatic vehicle locator system. And it turns out you can create a standardized feed of that. So we pushed for that. And the company was like, hey, we could make an app too. And I was like, don't worry about the app. It's going to be more important. <laughs> Nobody's going to use our local transit authorities app. But if we have the feed out there, then Google Maps and other organizations can use it and they'll make the apps that people really want to use. And that's exactly what happened. Nobody uses this little app that MTA produced, but now there's this great app called Transit. And so being in a position to get, to think about data and to think about systems, that also translated into council too, because we, in a lot of times you want to do some data mining about, we've got this system called Hub Nashville. And so we get these dashboard reports about it. And it's a way to submit anything that Metro might have, like anything from a pothole or a street light that's out been able to do some interesting things with maps. I was working on council for a long time on expanding what we have as this open data portal, which is a great idea. It's civic data that's usually sitting around in spreadsheets or in archived emails. And it's a great way to make things like anything from traffic accidents. So you know where dangerous parts of the city might be to the transit data, to publicly installed bike racks, all of these little things that people can then turn into really interesting civic hacking projects, basically. And you, instead of just thinking about things of, oh, we need volunteers for a trash cleanup, turns out most major cities have people who are programmers or good at UI and can create interfaces for something. And that's exactly what happened. But we have not seen that open data portal really get the attention it deserves as a way for people to start experiencing Nashville via all of our amazing digital technology that we now have. So it's something I hope to focus on as a technologist who is running for mayor. Yeah. It also seems like an interesting <laughs> metaphor, what you point out about the data feed and not building the app, but instead recognizing that the work of collecting that data would be of use and would have more value if you were allowing other entities to build the apps that could be the front end to, to different usages. That sounds like an interesting metaphor for kind of government service or civic service in general. Is that a methodology that you think of in, in, in the way that you approach governance? Is it about involving different constituencies and allowing to serve in the ways that serve the communities best? Yeah, it's so interesting the way that you're talking about that, Kate, because to me, in so many ways, local government is effectively a platform, right? It's infrastructure. It's the stuff that connects. When you go to build a business, what you're looking for is a place that is accessible, right? You need your own ability to get there if you've got a physical location. And whether it's customers or partners or employees, 
typically if there's a physical presence to something, you're building on the platform of the city, right? It's the public rights of way. It's the transit service. If there's, I mean, it's utility provision, water and electric, and in some cases, municipal broadband, which is not really a big thing in Nashville, but certainly some other cities offer it. And it's the same thing for building a life, right? Whether it's playgrounds or anything else, right? It's like the ability to interact with the city has so much to do with the interface that local government provides for that. So yeah, I do think about that sometimes. What do you think, how do you think that civic tech or these civic services can be used or can play a role in social justice and dealing with inequality? That's, again, I think if you look in terms of data sets and mapping things, one of the most important conversations that happened in Nashville over the past decade was this process that originated from a data set out of Vanderbilt that looked at public data. The report was called Driving While Black in Nashville, and it was released by Gideon's Army. And it was pretty compelling. And then it was reinforced by actually a New York-based organization called the Policing Policy Institute that showed effectively that no matter how you looked at the data, there was, you could say it's implicit bias, but it was very clear a discriminatory practice of traffic stops that was impacting Nashville's communities of color that was not in any way able to be correlated with the uh, the actual crime data underlying. And so people were being pulled over more often, literally for the color of their skin, maybe also the make and model of their car potentially, but it was a clear bias that was made evident by the data set. And so I think there's this same, similarly to programmatic pieces, I do think that data science and civic tech are actually uh, very adjacent in terms of their applicability to things in the domain of social justice. And analyzing data sets is where you start to see things like those troubling patterns emerge. Similarly, it was actually here in Nashville, our Metro Human Relations Commission, which really functions as almost like a, you could almost call it a conscience of local government. They put out a report called Inclusivics, and what it revealed was pretty significant departures across most of our local government in terms of the demographic categories that are in the government versus out there in the general population. Effectively, that whether it's gender or race, or even in some cases age, that our government is not as reflective as it probably ought to be in some very specific domains, including teaching and law enforcement, that it might need to be in. So again, if you're thinking about this as a passive scenario, maybe that just came to be, but if you're thinking about it intentionally of what kind, like how should our local government look? I think most people would say your local government should be fairly reflective of the population it's trying to serve unless there's a really good and clear reason for something else to be the case. And so it was a really good food for thought exercise. But I think similarly to the Driving While Black report, a lot of that has to do with effective use of public data sets, which can be analyzed either programmatically or by data scientists. And it's a really important role to play because you do learn a lot about how a city is interacting with the idea of justice. 
Absolutely. That's a very compelling set of examples. I wonder, since you're talking about public data, it also makes me think about personal data in the ecosystem of government and civic tech. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on data privacy in the context of civic tech as it relates to the way you're approaching your campaign and the way you're approaching governance. What is there a role that you see for Nashville or for similar cities to approach policymaking around data privacy at, at that local level? It's really interesting. I have worked with our legal counsel a couple of times now to look at effectively, could we establish a citywide, effectively data policy? And it's really tricky because there's the boundary line of Metro employees and what kind of data is out there about anybody who is a public employee. But then there's also the general public and how they interact with Metro. A great example that still I would, (laughs) I guess I would consider it in the space of unresolved. I had a constituent actually who lives not too far away speak at a public hearing. And so this is, if you're any city around the country generally is going to have some land use process where you may have an opportunity for the public to come in and weigh in on, hey, we're going to try to add some density or we're going to try to increase height or we're going to build X, Y, or Z. There's There will be a public hearing for it. This person spoke not realizing that their email address would be a part of the public record thereafter. Because I think they had sent in a comment to the planning commission and then that comment got put in and then they spoke and it turns out it was really hard to subsequently redact the email address. So somebody just interacting to express an opinion who was comfortable, I think, showing up in front of an appointed body to register an opinion, didn't realize that their personal information was then going to be available effectively online. So universally discoverable. and. Yeah, going back and making that no longer public turned out to be a real thicket. It was not easy to do. And so it prompted me to take a second pass at this. And the truth of the matter is at a local level, it's really tough. But at a state level, it is something that people should be thinking about. And as cities work together, it's really important. We've gone through this process of having body-worn cameras become a pretty standard part of policing. And usually it's associated with a transparency initiative, right? Where you say, hey, we don't want to have, we sometimes are hearing, he said, she said types of deliberations when there's an officer involved shooting and it's unclear exactly what occurred. So body-worn cameras became one potential solution to that. Now, the tricky part about that kind of scenario from a privacy standpoint is, let's say just a standard knock and talk is coming or you came, you called the police about something and an officer came to speak with you at your residence. If they're wearing a camera and you open your door, suddenly they've got camera access to the interior of your home. You weren't necessarily expecting to be participating in a search without permission given, but that's effectively what's happening in that moment, right? Similarly, if you've got a group of police at a major event, where it might be a rally or a protest or something where it's totally reasonable to have security presence, you may not be thinking that what is happening is effectively an opportunity for a mass facial recognition scenario to unfold. And so we've actually looked at that too, about constraining the ability for facial recognition to be a default part of any of the surveillance technologies that are out there. Because again, you go back to these data sets and if anybody found a legal way to do it, I think under 
until very recently, state law allowed license plate reader recordings to be basically generalized discoverability, right? So you could go collect records on a lot of the LPR data that was out there. I think if you go beyond that and say, I've worked in technology long enough, I guess, Kate, to say, my assumption is that almost any technological system that relies on storing data in a database is likely to be hacked. It's just a matter of time. It's hard to assume uh, that anything, whether it's stored at AWS or on some local municipal hard drive, I can't remember if you remember this, there was, a, there was a laptop that got stolen from Metro several years ago, and it turned out it had a whole bunch of data on it. And I'm trying to remember now if it was like election commission data, but it was some very large data set about personal information that was not supposed to be released publicly, but the laptop got stolen and it had all this stuff on it. That's problematic. And I think about it this way, when we've had these tough conversations at a local level of, yes, we always want to be helping keep people safe. And frequently that means using tools and technology besides just the actual members of the law enforcement community to do that. And so sometimes that means some element of surveillance is involved or whatever. But if you're capturing data about that in a way that gets stored, then over time you can start to see patterns of movement. And it might not be that somebody's entering illegal activity, but maybe they are going to medical appointments that they didn't want to become public. And suddenly you can say, oh, this person started at their home and they week over week, they're going to this place and so it's not that you're committing a crime, right? Because the counterpoint usually is, well, I'm not doing anything illegal, so I don't care. You might not be doing anything illegal, but you might still be doing something that's private or you're not today, but you might be later in your life. And whether it's mental health, physical health, or whatever it might be, I generally lean on the side of preferring that people maintain private life to the extent that they can and want to. And so government does have a role to play in that because so much of the the idea of government is that it is a public, right? It deals with public goods. It's It provides public service. And so information more often than not is supposed to be public. And it's really interesting because the flip side of that is too, I tend to be very strongly supportive of transparency initiative, right? The idea of open records, the idea of public records being public so that it's not like you can hide things that are supposed to be available to the public. But when it comes to the privacy of the citizens that engage with a local government, I tend to err on the side of trying to protect that. That's a really good and important distinction that I'm not sure any of our previous guests have been so explicit about. So I really appreciate you getting into that because certainly the dual roles of personal data privacy and government transparency or open data, that those are, they may seem at odds, but I think that clarification is going to be really helpful for some folks out there. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the future of jobs and the future of work and where you see yeah. city government and civic services coming into play there in terms of thinking about economic development and developing business-friendly climates, but at the same time thinking of the welfare and flourishing of citizens, of humans in, in your region there. How do you see, first of all, I guess on a personal level, what kind of impacts, what do you what trends are you watching and what are you thinking about in terms of how it's going to affect human work and flourishing and creativity and all that? Yeah, so it's really interesting, Kate, because again, until just a few weeks ago, when we started devoting my full-time energy to the campaign, 
I had still been in the tech industry, right? And I had been working for HealthStream basically since COVID. And a couple of things from lived experience there that are, I think are interesting to share, right? My interviews with the company all occurred virtually, right? Because the company had, it was, I think it was about late March, early April of 2020, right? So the the pandemic was squarely landing. We were seeing obviously New York's struggles with it, particularly visible at that time. And to their credit, I think from a workforce protection standpoint, HealthStream took a pretty conservative from a healthcare, like they went 100% remote pretty quickly. And they were able to do that as an organization actually, because they had had to leave their previous physical office space headquartered in Nashville prior to the availability of their new office space. So they already had a framework for remote work, right? They had actually been a temporary remote workforce before. So it actually turned out to be an easy exercise to do a second time. So that was interesting. But the going through the interview process 100% virtual was something I had never done before, right? I had certainly submitted resumes online or maybe done a call, but I had never been like on teams to do a series of interviews with a variety of folks. And then just as interesting was when I got offered the position, they shipped a laptop and all the little peripheral equipment stuff to my door. And for the next 18 months, the way I interacted with all of my teams was through virtual tools. And at first, I will be honest, it didn't take but a couple of Zoom happy hours during COVID for me to realize I didn't want to do that anymore. It turns out a Zoom happy hour is just a fancier way of drinking alone. <laughs> so that's a, that was a weird recognition. And so I wasn't into that. But it turned out, even though I didn't ever create an amazing home office space, like I would, on a great day, I'd maybe go sit on the front porch. And as often as not, I'd sit at the kitchen counter as opposed to at a desk. I, it turned out we were really productive. And I think some of that was company culture. The company had a strong enough culture that people could do it. And then same thing, even way below the level of the company culture down at the team level, everybody was not only, I think, self-motivated enough to participate, but we just, we had a great team and we were able to build it to be productive in a virtual environment. And I was really impressed by that because I thought it was going to be much harder to get people to show up for virtual meetings all the time. And still that rhythm gets it can be a little bit of a grind to do that all virtually and to never actually be standing at a whiteboard together but it lasted the better part of two years and again the organization as a whole took a very measured approach first it was like we're going to reintroduce business travel exclusively on a needs-based basis right you're doing a critical sales or support thing great but otherwise we're and then it was like all right now to come back into the office you're gonna have to show proof of vaccination and then eventually this was maybe the most interesting outcome now today with a footprint around the country they're not even offices they're resource centers right and so you can go in there is no expectation of going in there's not a mandate on days in the office or hours or anything like that and what I found is for me personally, again, lived experience and how it informs how I think about things. I love the model because I actually like getting out of the house. We have a great office and I love interacting with my colleagues. And I will say I'm, I actually get a lot out of 
the physical act of writing and being in in a collaborative environment where you have a whiteboard and can you can it's just none of these digital tools have gotten to the point where I still like them as much as um, in-person collaboration for some things but 80 percent of it we could do remotely and we have some colleagues two things are true even for some local folks there are folks who are like yep I'm not coming to the office anymore period don't want to commute. Don't, you know, if you lived in Murfreesboro, you lived in, if you lived in an outlying community where you're ex-urban, basically, you're not coming into the office anymore. If you lived out in any of the counties surrounding Nashville and Davidson County, you're, you're done. That's it. You can do everything you need to do virtually. The other thing that was astonishing was how many of my colleagues, and this is true of people I knew in Nashville, really did take the moment post-COVID or emerging from COVID, depending on where people were on the timeline, to just completely change their lives. And in some cases, it meant not just moving, but also changing professions entirely. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised by how many of my colleagues at HealthStream, one day we were on a Teams meeting and one of my colleagues who I knew had lived in East Nashville was like, oh yeah, I just moved up to Red Lodge, Montana. And I was like, you did what? And she was like, yeah, I spent a lot of time during COVID at my parents' house, actually, and they're in the Midwest. And she was like, I always wanted to be near the mountains. I can do my work. And that's that. And so it was really fascinating to discover how many people that I had never met in person anyway, had in that process of being virtual colleagues, changed something about their real world lives in a very significant and dramatic way. And the truth of the matter was, you wouldn't have known unless you knew them as a person and knew that that was the choice that they had made about their lives. And I think that's really fascinating. So now the way it impacts what I'm thinking about is, all right, so take Nashville as an example, because I think it's a really illustrative case study. We had a very dynamic commercial office market, right? Before the pandemic, we had Amazon kind of setting up here in a big way. Even during the pandemic, we had Oracle make this really significant investment in a major campus on our riverfront. And they've, both of those major tech companies have slow walked the completion of the build out of their corporate campuses here. And meanwhile, you've started to see other major corporate presence in Nashville start to sublease space. And it's not because of a reduction in workforce, it's because they're discovering that a significant part of their workforce is either going to be permanently hybrid or they may treat this not as an office, but as a place that, yeah, is more effectively a resource center. So what that means is we're not seeing nearly as much construction in the commercial office sector. And in fact, vacancy for commercial office is up higher than it was on trend. And meanwhile, there's incredible residential demand. So I'm fascinated by Yes, some people are moving out of cities. I certainly heard that. Anecdotally, we watched, right, my friend who moved to Red Lodge and other people who had moved to other parts of the country, in some cases, I think, moving out of urban areas. And I mean, there were a lot of things about, I'm leaving New York. You remember that whole thing, right? But it turns out cities are still really attractive, right? There's still so many things experientially about cities that aren't just about your job, and so we still continue to see really strong residential interest in Nashville. And I have heard that at least one major building downtown that has historically been a commercial office building is about to go through a wholesale conversion from commercial to residential. 
that's a fascinating trend. And I've heard that more projects that are coming online are moving more in the direction of mixed use. So they might have some commercial component, but they're going to have a pretty significant residential, whereas before it might have been intended to be something that was like all class A office space or something like that. And eventually, this is probably going to affect Nashville in the same way that it affects other markets. That'll have an impact on appraised value, right? Because historically, you've seen commercial land use tend to have a higher per acreage or per square foot appraised value than purely residential, right? If it's a single family neighborhood versus a mixed use neighborhood, look at Germantown. It's a great example. Where you used to live, you're, even the place where your house was, because it's mixed use, it has a higher commercial appraise, or a higher appraised value because you could do a commercial use there. At some point, that may put some pressure on cities that have property tax bases that they rely on for funding services. And we don't yet know, I think, what the outcome is going to be there. Those are all super interesting considerations and very much of the subset of things that I thought that you might explore. Do you have just a couple more minutes for maybe one more question? Okay, awesome. Because I do want to ask you, obviously, AI has had a lot of hype lately. And I wonder what you think about AI and machine learning being integrated into any kind of civic technology or civic services and what benefits you might see and what risks, of course, you might see there. Yeah, this is all really interesting. And I'll throw in a nearby thing that has come up a couple of times, which is blockchain, right? Because I think, again, this is why it's actually important to have technology leadership in civic leadership. And that means more than just, I think, having here in Nashville, we have Metro ITS, but they've not historically been like a software center, right? It's not like we have a cadre historically of a large number of programmers in our local government. And I think that's actually worth thinking through too, because I do think you need to be able to track trends in technology and at the director level, but sometimes also rank and file. This was what was always so fun about being in the tech industry is our peers always are into something, right? It's really interesting. Just hacker culture, the programmer ethos, all of these things. It's so much about discovery and breaking things in ways that cause new discoveries. It's such a curious endeavor. What's most remarkable to me about the recent rise of AI are a couple of things. It is having an impact on the real world and the way that Everything from vehicles interact with one another to systems that are much bigger than they used to be and responding to that. But it's having a huge impact on just communication. You could see my car, which is a 2018 model, has intelligent cruise control. And it's actually pretty impressive, right? I use it regularly if I'm traveling on the interstate and it knows the distance of every vehicle in front of me and can slow down or accelerate without me having to engage. And it's it's not nearly where some of the other systems like in Tesla's are, but it's as an early addition to the technology in cars, it's really fascinating, but it's been so quick. I remember being in college and taking a, an artificial intelligence course And I was just thinking, wow, we're never going to actually have AI (laughs) because it was like this stuff is it's about probability. It's it was so far from what you thought of in science fiction. It was like, okay, sure. Hal in 2001. And it was like, oh, God, we are it seems like decades, if not centuries away. And the fact that it has advanced to the point where not only is was the previous iteration of chat GPT, for instance, already pre- pretty impressive, but 
to go from chat GPT three to four and knowing what's coming and seeing what's out there. And like, you might have seen while it was a little bit of a hellscape, still amazing. The, uh, the beer commercial, did you see this? Where no. like an AI generated beer commercial, that oh, had a smash mouth song playing in the background and people having anatomy that certainly wasn't completely put together, but I saw too that one of the recent political ads was actually the first in the category of political ads that was fully generated by like the imagery in it, like it was an AI assembled political ad. And I think that's really fascinating because yes, it is having an impact on the real world and the way that everything from vehicles interact with one another to systems that are much bigger than they used to be and responding to that. But it's having a huge impact on just communication, right? And the idea that teachers are having to now be on the lookout for papers written by AI, that kind of thing. And what is the impact going to be for education, period, right? Is it going to change the way pedagogical approaches to learning uh, happen at all in the class? Is it going to change the way we think about how people learn and demonstrate what they've learned? That's a big deal. And then I've had through the years, people talking about blockchain from the standpoint of some of what government does actually makes sense as a distributed ledger model. Now, that's totally different from whether we should have any of our fiscal resources be in cryptocurrencies. But even that has come up before. You've actually got, I think there's a local mayor somewhere in Tennessee, and I can't remember which city or town, but who's gotten really into the idea of municipal finance having implications because of cryptocurrency. I think it's important to be aware of what is happening in the space of technology and where cities need to be adaptive to that. And sometimes it's just simple stuff. Some of it's what we've been talking about already, where it's smart use of data or Nashville finally is exiting the dark ages of parking where we are having the ability to pay for some parking on the street without having to know how many quarters you've got in your pocket and that kind of thing. And so those are the easy applications of technology. The Even going back a few years though, as we were thinking in Nashville about advancing our transit system pretty dramatically, one of the things that came up then was automated vehicles and what's the role for those in a city's mobility network. And I still think we're going to have to be challenging ourselves to think about that or one of the frontiers that's starting you're starting to see a lot more of and I don't know how common this is in New York but I am pretty surprised maybe impressed also maybe a little alarmed by how often you see drones just out if it's a parade or if it's a civic event or sometimes just because people are flying them around the neighborhood or the robotic delivery stuff that's out there and being piloted. And cities are going to have to grapple with that. You've amply covered the broad strokes of the intersection of tech and government, tech and humanity, that that civic city government perspective. I wonder, is there any last point that you would love to leave us with or any last anything that I should have asked you about that you'd like to leave behind? Overall, one thing that's still on my mind is I'm very fortunate. I had exposure to computers at a young age. I feel like my digital literacy has always been overall pretty high because of that. And I went to college knowing I specifically wanted to study computer science. But I think offering that exposure, I still think having an awareness of the fundamentals of programming or 
at least alpha technology user, like being familiar with technology, whether it's as a sophisticated user of it, but I think certainly having some sense of how things work under the hood, because so much of the rest of the 21st century, I think is going to be empowered by digital technology. And I think, I really do think there's a benefit to having most major organizations have somebody somewhere who knows enough about software and technology to be in a position to manage it or procure it or create it. And so that all three of those, I think, are really important components of not just civic organizations, but certainly civic organizations, which I think often think of themselves as not needing to worry about it. And the same is sometimes true of small businesses or restaurants. I just met a guy who was really taking uh, what I consider to be a technologist's approach to just pies and cookies. And it was thinking about data and, but also logistics and how thinking now about ingredient mixes and what can stay in freezers for how long and what all of those things were, and then having an app driven mechanism for ordering and all of those things. And it was like, yeah, here was what was this really fascinating, old fashioned homegrown business by a woman who just did it because it was her passion. And now she's paired with this guy who's really got this almost entrepreneurial zeal for bringing the technology to bear on it. And that, and what it's going to mean is they're going to be an extremely successful small baked goods business. And I think that's really fascinating. And it, it happened partly because of the being able to take this very simple process of sugar, flour, and oil, and suddenly mash it up against all of the things that are possible because of technology and means explosive business growth potential. And I think that's a really great example of it. And I think people's awareness of technology needs to continue to be at the forefront of how we think about what useful skills are for the 21st century. That's like object-oriented pastry. That's That's right. It's not just widgets and sprockets. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very tasty note to end on. Thank you for that. (laughs) Now you're going to make me go eat a cookie. I know. uh, See if I have any in the cupboard. (laughs) Ready. Thank you so much for taking the time and getting into some of this stuff with us. Where can folks find out about your campaign, about the work you're doing and about you? Yeah. So the best way right now is readyforfreddy.com. It's all just one word spelled out. Um, and Freddie is F-R-E-D-D-I-E. We have a website up and you can certainly find me on social media. I'm pretty easy to find out there. And yeah, it's going to be a great adventure for the rest of the summer. I've loved being able to have such a long period of time where I've been able to take my interests in technology and in civics and combine them as often as I can. Thank you for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. This episode was produced with help from our extended team, including research by Ashley Robinson and Aaron Daugherty at Interabang. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to all of our guests for lending their voices and ideas to help make the future a brighter place. I'm Kate O'Neill, and you've been listening to The Tech Humanist Show from KO Insights.